Hey guys, it's Sean, and with 2020 approaching, I started to look back on 2019, and one of the things that gave me the most value was my conversation with Ramit Sethi. So today is a replay of his episode, which was originally 112. Ramit has so many great pieces of tactical advice to get your finances in order, how to think big, and many things that's helped him become successful. Also, we collaborated with Podcast Notes, so there's unbelievable write-ups and quick tips from this episode. I hope you guys enjoy. Thanks again for listening. Uh, what got you there with got you got you? What got you there with Shonda Laney? What got you there uh, with Shonda Laney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Ramit Sethi is a New York Times bestselling author and founder of I Will Teach You To Be Rich dot com. Over 1 million people have read his material to learn how to use psychology and systems to live a rich life. That could mean automating your finances, making more money, finding your dream job, starting an online business, or mastering your inner psychology. In this episode, you will learn what strategies Ramit is implementing to live a rich life in 2019. Ramit, welcome to What Got You There. How are you doing today? I am doing great. Thanks for having me. No, we're excited about this one. I mean, you are fresh off your honeymoon. First off, congratulations. I know it was a few months ago, but on your recent marriage, what's it like going on a trip like that? I know in the pre-call, you mentioned it was six weeks. What do you take away from a trip like that? Oh my God. It's uh, life-changing, to tell you the truth. We So I'll tell you where we went and I'll tell you why we went there. Uh, we started in Italy and we had always dreamed of taking our parents on part of our honeymoon. And we decided that Italy is a nice, safe, easy way to travel, right? Everybody loves pasta and pizza. So we, we went to Italy. We took our parents with us. We went to the Vatican. We went, did cooking classes, all kinds of stuff. Uh, and then they went on their way and we uh, went to Kenya. We went on safari. And after that, we went to India, which was absolutely amazing. And then finally, we finished off in Thailand. And, uh, you know, it's funny. I don't know about you guys, but I had never dreamed of going on a six-week honeymoon or any kind of six-week trip. Like, I haven't taken a trip like that maybe ever. And uh, we were out talking with some of our friends many, many months ago. And we were talking about where we were planning to go on our honeymoon. We thought we would do a typical eight-day honeymoon maybe go on safari. That was our dream. And uh, our friends were like, oh, that sounds really good. Safaris are amazing. You know, when we went on our honeymoon, we took six months off. And my fiance at the time and I were like looking at each other like, who are these people? And then the next couple's like, yeah, we took a year and we just decided to travel. It was the best thing we ever did. We walked out of that dinner looking at each other like, did I hear that right? And then we kind of kept looking at each other and we said to ourselves, wait a second, like we could do something like that. And that was a really magical moment for us. We actually started to think a lot bigger. And it was all because of some offhand comments that some friends made to us. But we realized, hey, if we can afford it and we both run our own businesses, why not? What if we did? And that's a, a kind of a great theme for this year is to ask ourselves, what if we could? And it really opened up just a massive possibility for us. Why do you think prior to those conversations, you guys hadn't even had that on your radar? I know today in, in the social media, Instagram world, we see all these people that are just traveling nonstop. Why wasn't that something you guys were into? 
Well, first of all, I make fun of all these Instagram like <laughs> people. All they do is post pictures on the beach. I'm like, do you have a job? And I think every one of us knows like there's something shady going on if you're posting photos in Tulum doing yoga like eight days a week. It, it doesn't make any sense. What's going on here? So I always am just like, these guys, come on. But I'll tell you why I never even thought of it. I think I have this term uh, on my site that we talk about called invisible scripts. And invisible scripts are beliefs that are so deeply held in our culture that we don't even realize they're beliefs. We just think that they are axioms. We think they're self-evident truths. One of them would be uh, education is the solution to every problem, okay? Uh, And as an Indian guy, I'm raised, hey, get your education, get advanced degrees, all that. Another one in America is buying a house is the best investment you can make. That's a belief that a lot of people have. Happens not to be true, but people really believe it. I think for me, my invisible script was you go on a honeymoon that's uh, a week or two, you go to a beach, you sit around, and then you come back and go back to work. And I had just never even thought about it. And so hearing people around me who challenged that belief was really refreshing. I love challenging beliefs. I love that you guys took that risk as well and, and really pushed yourselves to go on this trip. What was the most memorable part of it? You mentioned a lot of countries. Oh my God. Uh, we'll never forget just being with our parents and just traveling with them. Um, both of our parents, both sets of our parents are alive, healthy. They like each other and we have great relationships with them to get to travel with them and to go, uh, to cooking classes and to really treat them luxuriously was just amazing. Um, you know, they, they both gave everything they had to their kids and we had the privilege of being able to say, um, just show up and don't think about anything else. And we had people waiting at the airport for them. We put them in beautiful hotels. We took them on private tours and they didn't have to think about anything. So just seeing their joy was <laughs> like something we'll never forget. And then I think for us, um, uh, personally, I remember going on a horseback safari in Kenya and I didn't know this, but when you're on a horse, animals can't really tell that you're a human and they're not really scared of horses. So you can actually get really close up. So I remember we were both on horses and we are in the middle of this herd of giraffe and we're almost, we can almost reach out and touch them. And it just felt like we're in Jurassic park. I mean, it, it felt like something from a different world. And to be in that moment and to know that, you know, everything else, business, all that stuff is being taken care of, but it's not even on our mind. We're just focused on what we're doing. That was just amazing. No, it's incredible to hear about. And then you mentioned the business is being taken care of and and finances and the little tactics and strategies you use is something we're going to talk a lot about. But I'm curious, do you advise people to stretch themselves financially to experience trips like that? No, (laughs) hell no. I mean, that would be, that would be really dumb to do here. Let me tell you. So how, okay, let's talk about a six week honeymoon and the finances associated with it. So I had been, uh, first of all, I knew that on this honeymoon, um, there's a couple of things that I really love. One, I love very high end luxury hotels. Okay. When I travel, which is not that often, I like to stay at really nice hotels. Um, I also knew that I didn't need to eat at the highest and best end places in every city. I also love street food. Now my wife, we happen to be really aligned on it. She doesn't really particularly care for high end hotels. That's more of my thing, 
but we both love local culture, uh, street food, et cetera. In order to do a trip like that, or for anyone, if you want to take a one week or two week trip or whatever, for me, you can stay in five-star hotels. You can stay in hostels. It really is up to you, but financially it should all be planned for. So I had already been saving for a honeymoon for years. In fact, even before I met my wife, I had been saving for my wedding before I ever met my wife. And this is something I advise a lot of people. Um, there are predictable things that will happen in your life. You already know they're going to happen. You're probably going to buy a house one day. You're probably going to have kids one day. Uh, your parents are probably going to pass away one day. These are things that are very predictable. Plan for it. Don't deny it. Don't put your head in the sand. If you plan for it and you just acknowledge these uncomfortable conversations, you can actually live a really, really rich life. But all it takes is first being honest with yourself. What do I want in life? What's my rich life? And am I willing to put some time in to plan for it? So you mentioned the planning and putting down what your rich life is. Is, is this something you do every single year? We're at the start of 2019 now. Are, are you mapping out the year going forward and maybe a little bit longer timeline, say 10 years out for some of those things? Totally. I think, uh, so I'll tell you a little bit about what I do and, and then I'll sort of challenge everyone listening to define what their rich life is. Um, so every year I think about what do I want to accomplish? Um, and I don't really do resolutions that much. I usually do themes. So, you know, a theme uh, for me this year is um, uh, making more friends and building better relationships. That's a huge one. And so that theme allows me to be a little flexible. Like if I'm going to plan a trip, I want, I'm going to think about, hey, what friends do I want to invite on this trip? And I think that to me allows me to be flexible and kind of go with the flow, but also still have a, a big vision. For a rich life, for everyone listening, if I asked you, what is rich to you? What do you think people would say, Sean? Probably being able to go on one of those trips you mentioned, maybe afford one of the houses they've dreamed of, something like that. I think so. I think that's probably true. I think a lot of people would also probably think about it for a few seconds and then they might say, I don't know, like having a million dollars and like this arbitrary number that just came out of nowhere. And if you think about it, it's really surprising that most of us go to work every day. We work a lot uh, or we run our own business and we spend time with people, but we never think, what is my rich life? Specifically, what is my rich life? We have this weird number, a million dollars. Does that really matter? If, if What if you're 62 years old versus 22? What if you live in Manhattan versus Kansas? That's different. And then if you ask people, well, why a million? They have no answer, which to me is absolutely fascinating that most of us have never spent 20 minutes thinking about what a rich life means. So I'll give you an example from my own life, because I think a lot of times when we think about what is a rich life, we have all these lofty, grandiose goals. I want to be remembered. I want a legacy. Like I just want to be able to order appetizers when I go out and eat at a restaurant. When I grew up, we did not order appetizers. We never even ate out except once every month or so with a coupon. And we definitely would not order appetizers. Okay. So when I started off, I was like, I want to be able to go to a restaurant and order an appetizer. And then, you know, as I became a little bit more financially comfortable, that, that very dim and modest goal expanded. Now I have a policy at eating out. If I see anything that looks good on the menu, I order it right Two desserts. Okay, fine. Um, similarly, 
when I moved to New York, I was like, you know what? I want to be able to take taxis if I choose to. Now, most of the time I take the subway, but if I want to take a taxi, I can. These are like $20 decisions. They're not that big, but for me, that's a rich life. And then of course, as I became more comfortable, then I started to dream bigger. So something like a a luxury six-week honeymoon was like obviously a huge capstone and something that I was really proud that I could do um, with my wife, but I would have never started dreaming there. So for everyone, I would challenge you, what's your rich life? Be honest. A lot of times you'll discover that it's uncomfortable to be honest. You might say, I want to buy a $1,000 leather jacket. But even people who say that, they kind of feel guilty about it. I don't believe in guilt and money. I think if you want it, you should spend extravagantly on the things you love as long as you cut costs mercilessly on the things you don't. I love that perspective. When you mentioned mapping out your rich life, is this something you're actually writing down? Do you have an Excel spreadsheet you're, you're mapping this all out on? Not really. I think there's some people, there's some, so I don't know about you, but I have uh, like people in my life who do the whole Excel thing and they, they map from like a 60 year life goal down to what they're doing this week. And I, I'm just not like that. Like, I, I don't think that way. And, uh, I always admire people. I'm kind of jealous of them for being able to go from like a 60 year life to what they're doing tomorrow morning at 10 30 AM. Uh, I operate on a daily basis. I use a calendar, but on a high level, I pick one or two themes. And then I just try to check in with myself every quarter. So I'll put a Google alert on my calendar. And at the end of every quarter, so let's say the end of March, I'm going to be checking in and saying like, hey, am I making progress on this? And if not, then I need to start paying attention. And if by the middle of the year I'm not, then I would get a little bit more detailed. I might put it on a monthly check-in versus quarterly. Ramit, you and I operate in the same fashion. I'm not an Excel guy either, so it's refreshing hearing your uh, perspective. <laughs> I thought I was the only one because you start to feel bad. You're like, wait, am I missing out on some weird Excel macro thing I need to be doing to run my life? I'm like, I suck at Excel. So it's good to know that there's two of us. So you mentioned when you were just starting out, some, some of the tendencies you had mostly around ordering out at restaurants. Let's give the listeners a little bit more perspective into your back strategy or your backstory, how you came to be where you're at today. Where are you from originally? How'd you end up here? All right. I was born in California. And uh, like I said, uh, my family was, uh, we had a pretty big family, pretty middle class. And my parents would say to us, look, uh, if you want to go to college, well, they didn't say if you want to go to college. We're Indian, so we knew we were going to college. But they said, you got to find a way to pay for college because we don't have any money saved up. And I said, no problem. So I, so as you can tell, I'm a systems guy, right? I, I started saving for my engagement before I was engaged. Like, it's kind of weird. I get it. So I sat down and I was like, you know what? I'm going to build a really cool way, a really cool system. And I started applying to scholarship after scholarship, eventually to 65 scholarships. And I paid my way through undergrad and grad school at Stanford. And I learned a couple of things from that process. Number one, I learned that uh, my parents had said something offhandedly that really changed my life. They said, don't worry about the money. Worry about being good enough to get in and the money will take care of itself. And that's very counterintuitive from a guy who later wrote a book on personal finance to say, don't worry about the money. But actually what they taught me was, if you are great at what you do, the rest of everything becomes much easier. 
right? I have people who, uh, who work at my company and they are extraordinary at their jobs. And one of them, for example, she asked if she could go live with her um, family abroad in France for a year. And she was so good at her job. We said, sure, we will make, we will arrange for that. And you can still work with us uh, because she was so good at her job. So that was a great lesson I learned. Another lesson I learned was the power of systems. It's um, if you set up a system, whether it be for scholarships or whether it be for your finances, you can just get massive, massive rewards. And so anyway, took that uh, scholarship money, 1999, 2000, took some of it, invested it in the stock market. Big mistake. I started learning. I wasn't as smart as I thought. And uh, I started learning about money and psychology. So um, if you fast forward until today, I had tried to teach some of my friends at Stanford about money. Nobody really wanted to come to my free classes. So I started a blog. The blog got bigger and bigger, uh, wrote a book that became a New York Times bestseller. And now we have about 20 different courses about money, psychology, careers, negotiations, and all different parts of a rich life. So it's funny you mentioned things you're great at, and I'm curious how you articulate what you're great at. What do you think your unique skill set is? Um, that's a good question. It's, it's kind of hard to say what, what you're great at. It's always better for someone else to say what you're great <laughs> at, right? So I wish, I wish my mom were on the call. She could really uh, pump me up here. I think for me, there's a couple things that I would say that um, – have come naturally to me. And with work, I've become very good at them. One would be understanding human behavior. I always have had a passion for it, always. Um, and human behavior is so many different ways, right? It's, it's um, dating, it's money, it's relationships, it's so many different things. And if you're curious about it, you kind of know. You're, you're always reading different subreddits about relationships and all these weird things people do. Uh, if you're curious about money psychology, you're always reading about it and learning about crazy stories. So that's one. I, I think that uh, my I had a talent show when I was a sophomore in college, and I couldn't really think of too many talents. So the, the talent that I had was I uh, took Dave's Insanity Sauce, and I held it in my mouth for 60 seconds so I can eat really spicy food. That's my other skill. <laughs> very impressive. Very impressive. You, you mentioned you're a systems guy and, and something I've, I've read a lot and t heard you talk about are money dials. I would love yep. for you to dive into your money dials uh, and how the listeners can implement them. Okay. Money dials is a, I'm so glad you asked about this because money dials is one of my favorite concepts. So money dials describes the area of life that you naturally love spending in. Now, everyone's got at least one money dial. And if I ask you right now, just think for a second, what is something you absolutely love spending on and you will spend a ton of money on? Sean, what would it be for you? Experiences. Okay. Specifically, what type of experiences? Travel experiences. Ah, I love it. Okay. Travel is one of the biggest ones. Awesome. So travel is a money dial where people are like, I'm going to spend unapologetically, right? Other examples of money dials would be health and fitness. Uh, it could be relationships. I've got a buddy of mine, Nick Gray. He throws a huge number of parties all the time, and he just loves meeting new people. He will go to conferences across the country just to meet somebody. Uh, Self-improvement is a huge one. What do you do with money dials, and why am I calling it this? The reason that I talk about money dials is that 
I actually encourage people to think strategically about what your money dial is and to actually spend more on it and then to think about areas of life that are not that important to you and you can cut back on those. So I'll give you an example. If you think about a dial, think about like a dial on a stereo, right? You can turn it from left to right. You can turn it all the way up. If travel is your money dial, most people think, oh, if, you know, if I want to travel a little bit more, I'll, I'll go uh, for four days to Vegas. All right. Then they go, hey, maybe I'll take a, a beach trip to Mexico. But what if you turn that dial all the way up? What if you spent 10000 or 20000 or even more, whatever the number that's feasible for you? Suddenly, you're in the realm of taking maybe a six-week honeymoon, if that's something that's relevant to you. For most people, they have never thought about what it would mean to go all the way to the end of that dial. My money dial is convenience. So I built my whole life around convenience. So I have a personal assistant, a personal trainer. You know, I wake up, food is ready. Like all that stuff is all taken care of. And I spend a lot of money on it. But I also don't care about a lot of other things. So I cut back on that. So I think the concept is very intriguing for people to say, first of all, what's my money dial? Am I actually spending a lot on there? What are the things I'm not spending on? And if I wanted to go all in on this money dial, because it provides me joy and value, what would I do? Where would I go from here? To me, that's a really interesting topic to think about. Yeah, I love you talking about convenience and, and that's your money dial and something you spend a great deal on. How long have you been spending money on convenience? And then, and then how do you figure out how much you can actually put into that? Well, it's funny the, the money dials, the whole, per, and if anyone Googles money dials, you will find my whole uh, articles on it and things like that. You intuitively know, everybody intuitively has a money dial that they just love spending on. So mine was not travel. Like I don't wake up and dream about traveling. I don't wake up and read travel magazines, but I do wake up and read how other people work with their personal assistant. Okay. Weird. I know, but it doesn't matter. That's just what I love. Convenience. Speaking of that, do you have some specifics or are there certain articles, blogs that, that you really read in case there is someone who loves the exact same thing? Oh, dude, I have a whole course that my assistant and I built together. It's called Delegate and Done. So people can just Google for it. And we show the entire way that we run uh, our meetings. And I'll give you one little tidbit. So uh, my assistant is remote. My entire team is remote. And my assistant has two 30-minute phone calls with me every week. She spends the rest of the week preparing for those phone calls. And on those phone calls, we will usually make 45 to 60 decisions in 30 minutes. So they're extremely, extremely focused and busy. And at the end, it's almost like you feel like you've just gone for a sprint. You're just done. Um, but there's a lot of work that can be done with an amazing assistant to help run your life. And um, we talk all about that in the course. Delegate and done. Yep. So you were just describing some some of the things that you've done in terms of outsourcing, essentially creating your life, making it a little bit easier. What about when the things start getting a little bit tough. Say you have some momentum going and then all of a sudden you hit a roadblock. How do you steer clear of that and then use that failure as a rebound essentially? Oh, well, I would say that for everyone, um, it's never going to be as smooth as it seems, right? You're always going to be running into some sort of roadblock. And I think the first thing is the first time that I ran across a roadblock, um, 
Well, actually, I'll tell you an interesting story. So when I was first starting out my blog, I uh, had I started to get some readers, right? I started to build a community slowly. And eventually, I needed some help. And I put a post out there. I said, hey, would anyone be willing to help me out? I need some help, I don't know, posting stuff on the blog or, or whatever. And I got a lot of people who reached out and said they would love to help for free. Okay, so this is back in early 2000s. And the blog was not generating any money at all. And I gave them, each of them, like a tiny, tiny assignment. I said, come back to me by Friday and show me what you got. So I remember I spoke to about five to seven people. Each of them had sent in their assignment. And I gave them some really candid feedback. I said, here's what you did really well. Uh, Here's what could be improved. And here, this just, I think this wasn't up to standard. This is what I would change next time. Okay, out of those seven people, guess what happened? None of them responded. They disappeared forever. Never heard back from them. Why? Because this is, after the first one, I thought, you know, maybe his email, maybe he lost access to his email (laughs) account. The second one, I said, uh, oh, you know, they're probably busy. Their grandma might be sick. And then the seventh one, I'm like, okay, there's something going on here. What I believe happened is these people had never experienced failure before. And the, the, the great irony is they weren't failure. They were actually doing a pretty good job. But think about how rare it is to get candid feedback. Hey, you did a good job here, but this really wasn't up to standard. For most people, the answer is like, never. You haven't gotten that since you were in second grade. Because we like to be coddled. And, and honestly, the older you get, the less likely you are to put yourself in situations where you get feedback like that. So when they heard it, when they encountered their first, quote, failure, it was too much and they just disappeared. And I thought to myself, this is so fascinating because if the first time you experience failure is in your 20s or 30s, it's going to be really, really hard for you to handle it. And so let's say that you're deciding maybe you want to lose weight this year, right? And you start doing it and, you know, you're reading some sites and maybe you started to count your calories and then, you know, you have a weekend away, you're, it's Thanksgiving, and all of a sudden, you know, you're back at your original weight. Well, guess what? You have two choices here. One is to say, this is never going to work. I'm, forget it. This thing doesn't work. Or the second is to take a really honest look at yourself and say, what did I do that contributed to this? What can I change going forward? And uh, I have a lot of things that happen on a day-to-day basis where things are not going according to plan. Um, I would say that Number one, just being aware that things do get better over time. Number two, being really honest with yourself and saying, what role did I play in this failure? And then number three, saying, let me take a long-term perspective and just get back to it tomorrow. Tomorrow's a new day. I love those three approaches. You hear the term getting comfortable, being uncomfortable. Is that something you're doing on a daily basis, challenging yourself? Definitely. That's one part of my rich life is challenging myself. So um, for me, it would be maybe reading books that um, are not the sort of typical books that I might usually read. Uh, I think those are, those are ways to challenge yourself, you know, working out in different ways. That's going to challenge. That's something that challenges me. And then navigating different parts of my business. Um, that's parts that challenge me. And on a personal level, you know, when you're in a relationship by definition, I think you're going to be challenged in different ways that you didn't expect. So I think for me, that's a, that's definitely a core part of my rich life. Um, So yeah, I encounter that all the time. 
You mentioned when you were first starting out, building that blog, building an audience. I'd like to dive into that, see what you learned from that, and then also cover email lists. I know you put a lot of value into your email lists. Yeah. So building an audience, um, I would say this, um, going back to when my parents, my parents also had another phrase they told us when we were in our uh, teens, and they had this odd phrase that they said, which was, why don't you write it up? Why don't you write it up? And what they meant was, why don't you, you know, we had some idea or something we were talking about at dinner. And they said, why don't you write it up and submit it to the newspaper? And we would. So we would write some of our ideas or whatever up and we would send it to the Sacramento Bee. And it was published a few times. We had little columns in the Sacramento Bee. And I still to this day, I'm not sure why my parents said, write it up, because they're not writers. But what they were really teaching us was, we had something valuable that the world needed to hear. And I believe that's true for most people. I think you've got unique experiences, you've got value. And if you write it up in the right way for the right people, people would actually love to hear it. So that's kind of the approach I took with personal finance. You know, I had finally learned how personal finance worked. I had uh, cut through a lot of the BS out there, like all these old people you see ranting on TV telling you cut back on lattes. Like, I'm not going to live like that. And by the way, that advice is really, really horrible. You should buy all the lattes you want. That's a tiny bit of minutia. Just get the big wins right. Automate your investing, negotiate your salary, do the big things. You'll never have to worry about lattes or appetizers again. So I started to develop these, these ideas in mind. And they weren't especially refined, but I knew that I was on to something. And I started writing them up. And, uh, you know, for the way I started writing them up was I started trying to teach a class at Stanford very informally, and nobody came. Okay, so here I am. This is in 2002 through 2004. I spent a year and a half trying to teach people. And I would be spending all of my time trying to convince people to come to my free class. I'm like, what? This is free. Why am I, why am I doing all the work to get you to come for free? This makes no sense. That's, so here I am, right? Imagine my face. I'm experiencing failure after failure. I'm going in, people, like three people said they're going to come. I go to the area. Nobody shows up. Okay, And this happens over and over for a year and a half. That is as emotionally draining as it gets because you feel like you've got something to tell the world. You're not even making a cent off it and still nobody's coming. So here again, I'm faced with a choice. I can say, this doesn't work, I give up. Or I can say, hey, what am I doing wrong? And that's exactly what I did. I took a hard look in the mirror and I realized nobody wants to come to an event about money. Definitely not from their friend in college who they basically just hang out with. They don't see me as some personal finance guy. And also nobody wants to go to an event about money because it makes them feel bad about themselves. Okay. So I said, I still have something the world needs to hear. I'm going to start a blog. Maybe these lazy college kids will sit in their dorm room and come read my stuff. And that turned out to be exactly right. It still took me many, many months. I still had to do a whole bunch of stuff to build traffic. We can talk about that, but just not giving up, being persistent, and also realizing you have to adapt. If the market is telling you nobody cares, then change your market, change your approach. And if you have a good message, eventually you will find the right audience. So you've got the right message. You've got the right goods. A question I get from a lot of listeners is they don't know what to charge, whether they're an artist or they're 
doing private teaching much like yourself. How do you figure out the market and know what to properly charge? Okay, first of all, this is okay, so this is what most people do. They're a music teacher, okay? And let's say you're teaching trombone. I don't know why I picked trombone. trombone guy? <laughs> no, I don't I never played a trombone in my life. It just came to mind. So, this is what a tr- typical t- uh, trombone teacher does. They're like, "All right, I'm going to teach uh, trombone. I'm going to create an ebook about it." Da-da. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to Google trombone teachers in uh, Jackson, Mississippi. And there's like two guys, you know, like they're just like, they're like 200 years old. They don't even know how to use the internet. And they're, they're Googling their competitors and their trombone competitors are charging like $3 an hour. They're like, I'm going to do it for $2.50 an hour. That is the worst possible strategy you can do. You're, you're choosing your price based on your unsophisticated competitors who don't know what they're doing. That's the worst possible way you could do it. What most people need to realize with charging is there is a market of people who will pay and they will happily pay for your services. Now, I'm going to give you an answer as to how much you should charge, but I just want to start here because the psychology of this is really, really important. You get too many people, especially creatives, who think that they're really nervous about charging. Okay. Oh, and so what they decide to do is let me charge less as if that will change the calculus. Charging less is not going to change the calculus. Finding a better audience is going to change your calculus. Okay. I'm going to give you an example from my own business. When I first, the first product I ever created, this is in 2006. I, I I was like, I just want to see if anyone will buy anything on the internet. I have no idea. So I created a PDF. It was called Ramit's 2007 Guide to Kicking Ass. And it was about some ways to become more productive and things like that. I charged $4.95, okay? And I literally had such low confidence that I didn't even set up like a fulfillment system. I just said, click this PayPal link and I'll email you the PDF. Because I thought that 50 people were going to buy it max, okay? Like 100 or so people bought it, I think, the first day. And over the course of its life, I think it generated over a thousand or 1500 buyers, something like that. So it really surprised me. What surprised me even more was that I had a lot of people who were complaining, oh my God, I can't believe this is $4 and 95 cents. This is ridiculous. Maybe if it were a dollar, I would consider it. And these were people who'd been reading my free site for at this point, three years. Okay. Do you realize how ridiculous that is? Now I have, uh, so I had a lot of people who complained, okay, a lot, but I also had a lot of people who bought and I found it very fascinating because the people who bought were not complaining. They just bought quietly. They used it. They sent me nice emails and that was that. What's fascinating is that I've now created products that are $200, $2,000, even $10,000. And we had fewer complaints for our $10,000 program which is an advanced business course than for that $5 ebook. So the point here is when you first start out, your natural tendency is going to be to charge less. That's not going to solve your problems. Okay. That's the wrong way to go. I believe you should add more value and then charge near the top of the market. So our products, like if you want to start a business, we have a product called zero to launch. It's the best product on the market. It's 2000 bucks. We don't discount it. We don't need to. 
because we tell people, this is what this product has. It has all these details. Here's all the stories of people who have used it, launched six-figure, even seven-figure businesses. And if you, and by the way, there's a hundred percent money back guarantee. Try it. And if you don't like it, just ask for a refund. That is way better than saying, here's a $7 product and please, please buy it. So that's a long way of saying uh, most people charge way too less, way too low. Don't do that. It's a huge strategic mistake. And instead, you know, a good way to think about it is $20 an hour is sort of a baseline. If you're teaching something, we, uh, you know, we have a lot of students who have moved way up the value chain to charge over a thousand dollars an hour. But I would say, don't even think about charging less than $20 an hour for any basic service that you're going to be offering. Ramit, I love how you break down the psychology first. I think that's such an important component of it. You mentioned how you've pretty much protected your prices, essentially. What about protecting your time? I've heard you respond to a lot of emails. How do you get caught up in that minutia and, and protect your time and avoid those things? Okay, so I, I, if, you're on my e- if you're on my email list, I have uh, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of email subscribers. And I think if you join that newsletter, you'll see how I do things a little differently. So you're going to get emails from me where I say, you know, please reply. I want to hear from you. And I tell people I read every single response and I do. And people are like, how the hell do you do that with hundreds of thousands of subscribers? And the answer is you just get really good at email, right? I can sight read them very quickly. Now I, re- I used to respond to everyone. I can't do that anymore because there's just too many emails, but I find it personally fascinating to understand human behavior. Remember I told you that's one of my natural things that I'm good at and that I like to spend time on. So what better way to understand human behavior than to get people sharing their innermost secrets and thoughts, which they do via email. Okay. Interesting side note. Um, people totally lie on Twitter. They tell they're more truthful on surveys, but they're the most truthful in emails. It's absolutely fascinating. I've asked the same question across different channels and you can see people, you can see the same people who say one answer on Twitter. They literally say 180 degrees difference on email. It's unbelievable. So that's just a side note. Um, I think for people in terms of protecting your time, here's my suggestion. Take a count, take a blank calendar and write out where you want to spend your time. It's one of the things I talk about in my book when it comes to money where do you want to spend your money? So if your uh, if your money dial is truly travel, then are you spending you know ten or fifteen percent of your income on travel? Well, if you're only spending two percent or one percent, is it actually your money dial? And if you're only spending one percent of time on uh, fitness, is that truly a priority for you? So the the best thing I would say is to actually come up with a blank page and craft out what you want your time and your money to look like. And then of course you can use different systems, financial systems and productivity systems to get there. But first of all, you gotta have a vision of where you wanna go. The vision where you wanna go. You mentioned when you first started out blogging, very few subscribers, you've really built that email list up to a couple hundred thousand. What's the value you now have because of you have such a large email list? I, I think it's almost incalculable. Um, it's like saying, what's the value of, um, you know, having a good group of friends who you can call, uh, you know, if you need to be picked up at the airport or you just aren't feeling great and you need some support. Um, 
I, I do think th- there's a slight difference with an email list because there's a financial value, but I also think that there's more to it than finances. So I'll, I'll break it down in both ways. Um, from a financial perspective, we have found that emails are single best channel. Um, in fact, if I had to say one huge business mistake I've made, it would be not starting an email list early enough. Um, I know all you guys hear all these things about email doesn't work and Instagram stories and all this stuff. I do all that stuff. I test it all. Email is killer. People buy from email. And so I think that's really important to know. Um, and then on the non-financial side, you get the chance to build a much deeper relationship with people through email. So if you're on my email list, you're going to see my name very frequently, more than your mom, more than your dad. And if you like my stuff, you're going to start to be like, wow, I really like what this guy has to say. He's got some, you know, really crazy stories that he shares. He's got some really tactical tips that I can use to negotiate. Wow. And, and hopefully some jokes that you like. Um, if, if you like that and you wake up every morning, you're like, oh, where's my email? Suddenly it becomes part of your day. And that becomes, uh, you just can't calculate the value because you know, if I go to a different city and I do a meetup, we might have 100 or 200 or 300 readers come out. What's the value of that? I don't know, but I know that it sure feels good and it feels good for them to connect with other people like them. No, I love hearing about that. You, you said one of your themes for 2019 is you want to make more friends. A question I get a lot of people in public settings, they, they might be a little introverted, a little nervous to introduce themselves. Is there anything you do when introducing yourself to make you more approachable? Man, approachability is a big problem of mine. I got these huge eyebrows. If you look at me, I don't look that friendly. I'm not kidding. It's a huge, it's a huge deal. You know, it's like RBF, but for guys. So I don't know. I, I don't know. You're asking the wrong guy about that. I, I need to ask you about that. You seem a lot more approachable than I am. No, I'm, I'm very introverted. I, I feel like you're very good at articulating yourself and what you do and then make people feel comfortable. You, you mentioned your humor, your comedy. You're very good at that. So I didn't know if there's anything that you do when you're in a new setting. Okay. So, well, it, it, so it, this is getting into like power dynamics and social stuff, which I'm super, I'd love to talk a little bit about this. So first of all, I think, um, it depends if somebody already knows you or not, right? If I'm going into a room and everybody knows me, that's a totally different approach than if I'm going to a cocktail party or a dinner where nobody knows anybody else. Um, the, the things that I'm going to say all sound obvious and yet almost nobody does them. So it would, you would be amazed how few people actually walk up to someone, put their hand out and say, hi, I'm Ramit or hi, I'm Sean. It's amazing that so many people wait for someone else to introduce themselves. So you've already put yourself in the passive seat. I try to go up and say, hello, I'm Ramit. Um, that puts people at ease. Uh, having a few little, um, uh, like scripts or little phrases in your back pocket. For example, when I've gone to a wedding where I don't really know anybody, I'm like, Oh, hi, you know, I'm Ramit. How do you know Jane? Perfect icebreaker. And then you can go from there. And then I think the third thing is like, there's a video we did on YouTube called, uh, social skills with Ramit. You guys should check it out. It's like 30 minutes, super detailed. And I actually analyzed my media appearances. So I go on all these national TV shows and I actually slowed it down and showed people what was going on. And I show people when I messed up too. I'm like, dude, look at this. I'm talking way too fast. What, what am I going to do to fix it? Let's take a look. The one thing that I learned when I was starting to do more media was 
there's one type of person who's a master at this, and that is celebrities. Celebrities are the best in the world at sitting down and making you like them within 60 seconds. And they do a lot of very subtle things. But if you study them, you can figure it out. So you can go watch, uh, let's say, Jimmy Fallon or whoever, and watch when he talks to celebrities. What do they do with their body language? Why do they intentionally smile at certain times? It's really fascinating to watch if you kind of treat it almost like a science experiment. And um, so I talk about this in this video. I would challenge everyone if you like, don't let an invisible script you have, like I'm an introvert, hold you back. Don't let any part of your identity hold you back. If you decide you want to be really good at walking into cocktail parties and making friends within 10 minutes, you can do that. I don't care if you're an introvert, extrovert. I don't care if you have one arm. It doesn't matter. You can do it. So uh, the whole point of I will teach you to be rich and all these things I teach is you can take control and craft your own rich life. It takes work. you got to put the work and the time in but you can absolutely reach the levels you want to reach. That's some great advice. I love the actionable takeaways as well. And I want to uncover your skill acquisition. You mentioned studying celebrities when you, when you were going on TV. Do you ever yeah. hire a coach or is this all self-learned? No, I've, I've hired a coach before. I'm a big believer in investing in yourself. In fact, I'll, I'll give you a few examples of different coaches I've hired. But uh, for media training, so when, when my book came out in 09 originally, I told my publisher, I'm like, hey, would you guys be willing to pay for me to go see a media trainer. The truth is if they had said no, I would have paid for it myself. But I was like, hey, these publishers have a lot of money. <laughs> Let me see if they'll do it. And they, they said to me, they were very nice. They said, well, why? We think you're already pretty good at media. And I thought I was good, but you know, the better you get at something, the more you realize how much you have to learn. That's what I realized. I, I, I had been going on TV, but I saw these people who were so much more relatable and smooth than I was. And I wanted to know how they did it. So I went to this media training and they spent a half day with me and they analyzed it and they taught me several things that I now teach my team. For example, uh, I have a product team. They build our amazing products. And I teach them, I say, okay, tell me about this product. You have 60 seconds. Okay, they have to be able to answer that question within 60 seconds. Most of them don't even get past the, the opening statement. And I just say, okay, 60 seconds is up. And they're like, oh my God, they, they don't know how to construct it in that short of a time. Over time, they get really good. And so if somebody says to you, Sean, tell me about yourself, you should be able to answer that in 20 seconds, 60 seconds, or three minutes. That is a skill that can be learned with a lot of practice and with some coaching. Um, so I think Hiring a coach or investing in a course is huge. I do it all the time. I did it with personal training. When I was on Safari, I hired a photography coach to come out with me and teach me how to take better photos. So I believe not in just creating products for other people, but also in investing in myself as well. You mentioned investing in yourself. You hired the personal trainer. The listeners kill me anytime I don't ask about if you have a morning routine. Is there any oh, non-negotiables you have every day? <laughs> No, I don't. Listen, I, I think that all these morning routine things, people like to talk about their morning routines more than they like to actually do something valuable. So it's like if, if you followed all the morning routines that everyone tells you, you, you know, you'd wake up, you'd wake up at 3.30 in the morning, you'd meditate for two hours, 
you'd drink kombucha, you'd, uh, I mean, all these things, you know, you'd write in a gratitude journal for nine hours and then you'd just keel over and die by 11 a.m. I just, I wake up, I think the best morning routine is determined the night before and the months before. So when I wake up, I have my calendar, it's all dialed in. Uh, in fact, it's so dialed in because I love convenience that I double click any item. There's a link in there. I click the link. The cursor appears and takes me exactly to where I need to begin writing. And I just begin writing. So that to me is more of a routine where everything is very logistically oriented. But, you know, I like to take it slow in the morning. I wake up, I have my coffee, I read the news, I read Reddit. I just take it slow and then eventually I start working. So that's how I do it. You're a systems guy. You've got to do what works for you. Exactly. And that's for anyone. Hey, some people want to wake up at 5 a.m. and they want to get right to it. Some people do a morning workout or they don't. That's fine. I think as long as it works for you, I'm all for it. Before we get the listeners linked up with you, I'm curious, what individual person has impressed you the most recently? Oh, wow. What a great question. What individual person has impressed me the most Oh man, you caught me off guard with this one. Um, you know, there's a writer who's also a surgeon called Atul Gawande, A-T-U-L, Atul Gawande. And he's a surgeon uh, and he writes for the New Yorker and he, was, he recently took over this massive healthcare system. This guy, not only does he write massive articles for the New Yorker and books, and he's a practicing surgeon, his ideas are absolutely amazing. So I'm really inspired by someone who can create lasting value like he does, and then share it with the world consistently. So I'm just a huge fan of his. I love all of his articles and his books are amazing. Um, and I'm kind of really grateful that you asked that question because it made me think about him again. And I think I'd like to go reread some of his best articles. And that was Atul Gawande? Yes. Great. I'm going to have to look that up. I have not researched him or read any of his stuff, so I'm glad that I asked that question. Oh, awesome. I'm glad I can share his work with your listeners. That's a real pleasure for me. So you mentioned a ton of different content you have out there, YouTube, your courses, your book. Where can the listeners stay connected with you? What should they be checking out? Okay. Well, I appreciate that. Um, the best thing I would say is go to IWillTeachYouToBeRich.com and sign up for the newsletter. You're going to get all of our best stuff. You're going to love it. We give away 98% of our stuff for free, and then 2% of it is very premium, and I, I believe it's the best there is out there. Um, I'm also on Twitter, at Ramit. I'm also on Instagram, at Ramit. And you guys can just Google me and find whatever you'd like, but uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to share some of this with you today and with your listeners. Yeah, no, Ramit, I only have people on that I truly believe in the value they're creating for people. The listeners know that. So you are someone I've read your stuff for a long time. I really appreciate you coming on and looking forward to following your success here in 2019. Thanks again. Have a great one. What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with Shonda Laney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with got you, got you? Thanks for listening to another episode of What Got You There. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review on iTunes and also share with your friends. Thanks so much. Looking forward to talking with you next time. If you want to stay up to date on all things I'm working on behind the scenes and everything we've got going on at What Got You There, 
head over to whatgotyouthere.com. You'll also be able to see more on podcast guests and what they're doing. Thanks to Justin Great for providing us the intro and outro song. If you like his music and want to find out more about what he's working on, head over to justingreat.com.